0: Praise be to God. Um, it's good to be with you and it's good to see you. Thank the Lord for his grace to us. And um, it's a real privilege to be sharing from the, the word today with you. Um, you know, as I was preparing... Um, we're, we're looking at a text that's really familiar for most of us, if not all of us. And as I was preparing it, it, it dealt with me differently. And as we get ready to, to dive into Luke 15, we're going to look at the whole chapter. My prayer is that if 10% of how the Lord reached me preparing reaches you, I will give thanks. If it was just 10%. If you just got the tithe. (laughs) Today we're going to be looking at God's outrageous love. God's outrageous love. And um, there's no doubt that you know, we, we consider God as being love. We know the phrase. We could probably even quote the chapter and verse. And yet there's a way in which Jesus reveals the love of God. That is, it goes beyond reason. It goes beyond any, anything that would be considered normal. And the reality is that every single one of us needs love, wants love, desires love, every single one of us and there's a way in which the Lord speaks to each one of us wherever we're at today through this chapter. So in this chapter we have, if fact actually let me pray first. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is expression of yourself. Thank you for who you are. And um, Lord, I do pray that you would really um, reach us as you teach us today, uh, of your love. Thank you, Lord. Because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this love that we learn of from the pages of your word is so real for each one of us today. I pray, Lord, that each one of us would leave here knowing that we are loved by you. Immensely, unreasonably, outrageously, consistently, unfailingly. Lord, I pray this, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Uh, We're looking at uh, Luke 15. I'm going to read it in sections and um, just commentate as we go. So Luke 15 verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So this, these two verses set the scene for what now follows as a, a parable. We're told in verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. And as you look at the chapter, in your Bibles it might even be lab- labeled up as Three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, and they might be the section headings in your Bible, but actually it's one parable, it's one parable, and it's a one parable in three parts um, sometimes known as a, as, as a triptych. A triptych. And um, in this sense, we see the lost sheep is the first part of the parable. But then Jesus moves on to the second part of the parable being the lost coin. And then in the third section of the parable, the, the lost son, or as known as the, the prodigal son... Jesus actually breaks that down into three parts. And each part of this journey is significant, especially in light of verses 1 and 2. Jesus was chilling with the villains, sitting with the sinners. He was there with the, the tax collectors and tax collectors were highlighted because they were considered to be traitors. They were Jewish citizens who were employed by the Romans to collect taxes from them, the Jews, to be given to the Romans. And so, I mean, nothing's new, right? No one's got love for the tax man. But given that Israel were under enemy occupation, it had a whole different kind of meaning to them. Tax collectors were considered scum. And so that's why they are, literally, they were considered scum by the Jewish population. And so that's why they are isolated and identified as particularly sinful sinners, if you like. Tax collectors and sinners. So they had issues with the company that Jesus was keeping. The people that... Jesus was spending time with, that he was associating with. And so Jesus told them this parable. <clears throat> First parables, the parable of the lost sheep. We have the lost coin, the lost son. Now, before we even get into the parables, I just want you to think for a moment. When was the last time that you lost five pence? You probably couldn't even tell me, right? It's, I mean, granted we use cash so infrequently, um, that in and of itself suggests, well, I don't know if I would have lost five pence at, at any given point. I couldn't tell you the last time I used five pence. And even if I did use five pence and I lost it, it's so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. What can you buy with five pence these days? I remember when you. No. <laughs> Do I need to show my age? My grey beard gives it away. I remember you could ride the bus for two pence. I, yeah, look, come on, you don't understand. I remember, I remember when as a child I could ride the bus for two pence. Yes, One piece, One piece, five bro, five penny pence. chews, half pence chews, no. half I remember getting on a 137, I used, to, I used to go to school by myself as a child, that's, that's how life was them days, <laughs> I remember getting on a 137 from Clapham, guide to Clapham Park Road and paying my two pence to the conductor, 2p, you wouldn't miss 5p, if it was thrown at you, you'd just be like that. If I asked you when was the last time you lost some paper money, maybe £10, £20, the the exact date might not connect, but the feeling at the time lingers. I, I can't remember the exact date, but I remember when I was cycling and I got to my destination, put my hand in the pocket to go in the shop, and the £10 that I had in my pocket was gone. And I... And you know, I just want to retrace my route. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Last time you lost a piece of jewelry. Huh? Piece of jewelry, and, and it, 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 it meant something to you. And you're searching left, right, and center trying to find this piece of jewellery. Consider the last time you lost a loved one. It's a different kind of feeling. It's a different kind of loss. I was watching Eliane's funeral um, uh, this morning. Judith had found the link and shared it with me. And as the pastor was opening the service, he said, you know, our grief is so deep because our love was even deeper. Amen. The significance of a lost item is completely dependent on how much value we place on that item. How much it means to us. And as... Jesus tells these stories of loss. There are ways in which he's seeking to connect with his hearers. And above all, demonstrate how much each person means to God. He is seeking to portray or depict or to to communicate how much each one of you means to God. But he does it with intent and purpose. Let's read from verse 4 to verse 7. Jesus responds to these grumbling Pharisees. Verse 4 What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Rejoice him. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now even though he was speaking to religious leaders, some of them would have maybe been owners of sheep as a family business, had servants or hired staff that took care of them and so the significance of sheep in that farming agricultural culture um, was a lot. And here we see this sense of the individual's willingness to leave 99 to go after the one. God is concerned for the 1%. God is concerned for the marginalized. But what's really interesting about this, and when I was. You know, preparing and recalling just from memory the the different aspects of this parable, I had got it twisted. I had thought that the story of the lost coin came before the lost sheep. And yet, as I really began to meditate on it, I recognized that as Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious leaders, these are the ones who knew the law and the prophets. He started with the sheep because it resonated with their identity of themselves. You see, in the eyes of a Jew, they recognized that they were the sheep of God's pasture. I mean, the great King David in that very famous psalm opens the psalm with the words, The Lord is my now, that psalm is well known in our era, but it was even more well known in their era. It's not just a, a modern popularity that that psalm has, but it has throughout the ages among God's people. We see in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 to 11, this prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 to 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. And so here we see one of the many references to Israel being God's sheep. And so he challenges them You are the sheep of God. And yet. As I'm here amongst those who are the marginalized among the people of God. You have no care for them. You have no compassion for them. And yet you would for your own sheep. You value your sheep more than you value these people. And yet God is ready to overlook all of you. And go and find the lost sheep. And so we see that there is a a challenge to them and there's a challenge to us because so often we've got more grace for the unbeliever. So often we've got more grace for the person outside than we do for our brother and sister inside. So often we're ready to drag our brother or sister across the hot coals because they looked at us wrong or they said something that offended us. Ready to cut them off and never speak to them again. And maybe it's because we think, well, you know, they're Christians, so they should know better. At least those outside, they've got an excuse. And yet this challenges us. God has love for the lost sheep. That's an encouragement if you feel like you're a lost sheep. Sometimes we have those seasons in our lives when we just feel as though we're just out in the wilderness. We're disconnected, disoriented, and discouraged. Maybe you're watching this on the video and in your heart and mind you resolved after COVID, you know what, I don't need to be amongst the, the sheepfold. I can just sit out here on my own and watch and be edified and yet you begin to realize the withdrawal symptoms you're feeling are because you are made for community, for interpersonal relationship not merely remote fellowship. But the Lord sees you right where you are. If in one way or another you're feeling lost and out of touch, out of reach, God loves you and he loves the lost sheep. And may we be likewise willing to love those who may well have offended us. To embrace them. In fact, to seek them out. The shepherd's attitude wasn't, well, you know what? The sheep knows where to find us when he's ready. I I take that as a personal challenge. Because sometimes when you've been affronted, when you've been misrepresented, misunderstood, when you've been slandered and talked about, when you've been... All these kind of things happen to us as leaders, quote-unquote shepherds, under shepherds, under Christ. And people go off the rails. And that temptation can be, you know what? Good for them. Let the Lord deal with them. They know where to find us. You know the amount of times, Pastor Rob's here, I'm just going to say it anyway. You know the amount of times I've seen Rob with his, with his pastor's heart reach out to, to, the, to the one that's off the rails. The one that feels like they can't even come home if they want to. And draw them in with cords of love. Bro, I thank the Lord for your life. You've always been an example to me. And so Jesus challenges the Pharisees. You're like, oh, you're, you're, you're the big, big sheep of Israel, yeah? But look at God's love for the lost sheep. He then tells the parable of the lost coin. Verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the, the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so, here again, we see that which is of value. That which is of value. uh, 10% of this person's wealth had been lost. And it was of value to this person to the point where, you know what, I need to find this money. When we consider coins and the value of coins, there's a way in which Jesus spoke of coins that helps us to appreciate the way in which this relates to God's love for his creation for people. In Mark 12, verses um, 13 to 17, the Pharisees had it with Jesus, just like they have in our text in Luke. And in um, verses 13 to 17 of Mark, they set out to test him. Verse 13, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes... To Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What was the point there? Jesus picked up the coin and just like our money today, they would inscribe a coin with the image of the ruler. And so we had a generation of the queen's head now the king's head. And so there was an image on the coin denoting the fact that that ruler was the one who authorized and gave value to that currency. And yet the scripture tells us that each one of us are individuals created in God's image. Created in God's likeness. Every human being bears a representation of the image of God. And this is one of the reasons why as Christians we have such a a fundamental sense of the respect and dignity of all people in ways and at times that others can easily forget or overlook. We recognize even if this person disagrees with us, even if this person doesn't believe in God, even if this person is defiant, this person is an image bearer. Even if they are living contrary to the way and the will of God, this person is an image bearer. They bear the image of God. Now, let's understand it properly and correctly. It's not that as image bearers, you could look at us and see an accurate reflection or representation of God because at the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered into our human experience. Our first parents became corrupted, and all of us that came from them bared that same corruption. And so, the image that we hold is a representation, but it's a marred, it's a corrupted, it's a distorted representation, it's a fragmented representation. Sometimes when we're with young people, uh, a way in which we demonstrate this is by holding up a mirror. And then doing the unthinkable, breaking the, break the mirror, shattering the mirror until it's just in fragments. And then when you look in the mirror, you can not get a complete picture. Everybody's thinking, wow, you're going to break a mirror, seven years bad luck. Every time you strike it, another seven years bad luck. And we're like, don't watch that. <laughs> we're saved. We're not superstitious. <laughs> and yet the thing unthinkable happened. The image of God was broken, corrupted, distorted. Albeit almost destroyed and yet remains. And so as we look at people in life, we see that God loves them as his image bearers. This isn't a love, you know, there are some that would say God only has love for his people, the church. And he, and he only has um, uh, anger towards those who are not. But I say that Jesus challenges us here right now with this. Because an individual has far much more value in the sight of God than a silver coin. And so we recognize that God has a special love for his people, just as any family have a special love for one another. That special love doesn't exclude Or um, work against that person's ability to love others. Mm -hmm. And in this we see that God has love for the lost. God has love for those who have no love for him. And this was our story. Paul said in Romans 5, whilst we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. How amazing is God's love? And so when we're here doing barley loaves and we're seeking to show love to the community, that's with intent. There isn't a prerequisite. Oh, you can only get supplies from us if you confess to believe in Jesus or if you sign up to attend church. We're demonstrating God's love For his most precious creation. And yet we want those same people to come into the fullness of his love. Because you can be loved and still lost. As we move on now. We see the parable of the lost son. And... As we look at the parable of the lost son, uh, it's it's broken into three sections. Let's read the first, uh, verse 11 to 16. And he, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Let's pause there. So, youngest son comes and... It's interesting that, that Jesus, after telling the few, first two parts of the parable, would even go on to share this. I kind of sit down and I, and, and I wonder, my suspicion is, as Jesus is sharing these parables, these, these stories of this parable to the, to the listeners, he wasn't seeing nods of affirmation. He wasn't seeing expressions of acceptance. Maybe they were still screwing up their face, shaking their head. Because that's what legalism will do. Make us hard-hearted and uncompassionate. And so, at this stage, it almost sounds like he gives them what they're looking for. Many have said that in the eyes of the legalists, the story, the parable would have ended here. Because here we see this son, and this son is not just a lost son, he's rightly called a prodigal son because he was rebellious. Defiantly rebellious. For him to say to his dad, Let me have my inheritance, is basically to say, I wish you were dead. Out of order. You know, in some of our households, (laughs) we know the response that he would have got. (laughs) Inheritance? (laughs) Let, Let me inherit your toolbox. Because that's... What? And yet the father responds to this demand and gives the son his inheritance. And... The son goes on to do that which is even more shameful in the culture. It was a shame for someone to take their elders' inheritance and squander it. It was a disgrace what your elders have worked so hard for and then you're just going to take it. I mean, in the West these days it, it, it come like that, that that kind of code of conduct that hasn't reached this, this part of the world. The amount of people we see squandering their parents' inheritance. And yet That wasn't normal in those days. And so he took it and he squandered it, verse 13, in reckless living. Riotous living. In fact, in verse 30, his brother said he devoured the property with prostitutes. Gives us a glimpse into the reckless living that the son was living and yet, when circumstances beyond his control take him, a famine, and he run out of resources, he had to go and do the, the next shameful act. Go and sell himself to a pig farmer. Now, for some of us, like for me, I grew up uh, in, in a family where uh, uh, I grew up pretty much as an only child, if you like. I have a, a sister, but we didn't grow up together. And so my cousins were like my siblings. Not an unusual in that regard in our communities. And um, many of my cousins were Rastafarians. So they were Aital. <laughs> and one of the things about being Aital in their outlook and, and their commitment was that They don't touch the Trenton. They don't eat no pork. And in the Jewish culture, fundamentally, they had a similar value where pork was not kosher. It was unclean. And they wouldn't even go near those who were pig farmers or raised pigs or cooked pigs because it was forbidden. And yet, this son had reached so low and had so little regard for his heritage that he went and sold himself to a pig farmer. And the pig farmer sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And I mentioned that for the Pharisees, this this is more along the lines of what they would have wanted to hear. Because they would have just stopped the parable right there and said, you see, if when you, you forsake God, you'll find out. That's why you have to be moral and upright and honorable and do the right thing. Because you will find out. And that's the moralist approach, the moralist view of God. Just do your best. Live upright and outstanding, and God will be pleased with you. And yet, the reality is that who of us can actually say that we are upright and outstanding? When Jesus came on the scene, he challenged their understanding of what it means to be outright, upright and outstanding. He said, You have heard it said, you will not kill shall not murder. Everyone's like, yeah. Mm. No flies on me. Yep. Yeah. But I say to you, Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart towards a person, you are already guilty of murder. Jesus said, you have heard it said, you will not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you are guilty. Because in both instances, all you lack is opportunity. The desire is there, the, the will is there, the readiness is there. You know, it's like, you ever see those films or those conversations? Um, what would you do if you knew you, you wouldn't get caught? <laughs> Some of you are thinking now, is it? <laughs> what would you do if you knew you wouldn't get caught? There was no comebacks. It's like the, um, It's, it's got to be like the, the, the foundational um, principle of the Purge franchise, right? There's just that period, is it 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever, and you can just do whatever you want, there's no comebacks, no consequences. And I think that they quite well depict the heart of men. Because people just go wild. And that really exposes us. What's really in our hearts? If we were given the opportunity, what would we really do? What would we really say? And Jesus turned the spotlight, not on just the external, but the internal presence of sin. Because it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so it's not enough to be moral. We need something deeper to change within us. And we see a picture of that in the next section, verses 17 to 24. So the sun's out literally in the wilderness, eating pig food. And he came to his senses, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I'm perishing here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. and they began to celebrate. What a picture of love. And we've got to understand, there were at least seven things that the father done here that were completely unthinkable, outrageous, as an expression of love in that life and times. The father was clearly looking out for him. Verse 20. While he was in the distance, the father recognized his his stride, recognized his posture, recognized his walk. His father was looking out. This son had shamed him. This son had disgraced him. This son had embarrassed him, had, had violated their relationship. And yet, The father was looking out for him, longing for him. This is the heart of the father to those who were afar from him. Those who are far away and feel like you're out of sight. We see that the father also ran to him. And again, that wasn't the done thing in that culture. For elders to be running around. They just moved with stately grace. And yet, he gathered up himself and he ran to his son. Arriving at his son, he could have just stood there and waited to see what his son was going to say or do. And yet we're told in verse 20 that he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Before his son could say anything, before his son could utter any words of repentance. His son could have been coming back to say, you know what, Pops, money done, you know. I need a I need a re up. I need a reload. The son hadn't even said anything yet. And yet the father had embraced him and kissed him. As the son begins to declare his repentance, the father interrupts him. Says, Hmm. get the robe, get the ring, get the shoes. Each of those items were an item of value in that culture. I mean, you think shoes? That's basic, right? But he didn't have any. Mm -mm. The ring was a symbol of um, affirmation. It's regarded to have been that which was maybe a signet signet ring that bears the the, the family name. Likewise with the robe, uh, a, a picture of authority. We see this when David was being pursued by Saul and he caught Saul slipping, sleeping in the, in the cave. And he goes in there and rather than disappoint God and, and in disobedience, he just cuts the, the corner of his robe as a symbol of not only what he could have done if he was bad man, but also the way in which Saul's authority was no longer valid. Because the robe was a picture of of authority. And yet the father said, get the best robe and put it on him. See, he was fully embraced, fully restored. And the the father threw a party so that everybody knew. He, He invited everyone to come and celebrate the return of the Mac. He even killed the fatted calf. And it's interesting because when we look at verse 29, we see that the older son says, you never even gave me a goat. The fatted calf was significant because the fatted calf was the, 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 that, that animal that they saved for special occasions. It was literally fatted. It was meaty, able to feed many. They might have used it for a wedding or a a bar mitzvah, a coming of age, or some other special occasion. And yet, the father called for that calf. This is a special occasion. Kill this calf and let's celebrate. And then in verse 24, the father makes a declaration And in making this declaration, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He is removing the shame from his son. And we don't understand that they lived in the honor and shame culture. The worst thing that the son could have done to the father is to shame him in front of the community, in front of the other family members. And we have a sense of that, but not in the same way. And yet, by making such an open declaration to the gathered community, he was affirming, look, there's no more issues here. There's there's no more shame within which the son has to walk and hold his head down. He is home and he has been accepted and affirmed as part of the family again. Everyone ought to treat him likewise. the goodness of God that he's ready and willing to receive us no matter how far we've gone and even remove any sense of shame that we need have. When we think about our past, when we think about the experiences that we've been through, It might be that for some of us, it's hard to even think about because we still bear that sense of shame for what we've done. And yet the Lord says, no more shame. You were lost, but you're found. You were dead, but I've made you alive in Christ. You are no longer associated with that person of the past in my eyes. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Your shame is gone. You can walk with your head up. That's powerful. You know, I think about so many people who were public figures. Uh, I was speaking to someone the other day and mentioned how Samantha Fox, those who are of age will remember the name maybe, she was what was known as a page three girl and one of the most popular. She became a Christian. And what a joy it must be to know that despite the fact that you've been plastered across newspapers for years, you're able to walk without any shame without any shame because you're new in Christ. Uh, uh, An American politician um, by the name of Chuck Colson was the president, um, Nixon's right-hand man. And in the 70s, he was called Nixon's hatchet man. He was the man who worked alongside Nixon in government to keep order and to get it done. And yet when the Watergate scandal broke uh, and the, the, the corruption had been exposed, he ended up serving time in prison for his part in that. And just before he, he uh, had got sentenced to prison, Um, Before he was even um, sent to court, uh, he became a Christian. And he was able to face his sentence with his head up as someone who was a new creation in Christ Jesus. And his expectation wasn't that the Lord was just going to save him from a sentence, he still went to jail. But as a result of that experience, the Lord used him to establish what is now known as the prison fellowship that has been reaching inmates across the U.S. and beyond for decades. God used that time in prison to have him start a ministry to those who are disregarded, rejected, forgotten. See, when, when we're able to see beyond the shame and the humiliation that the devil wants to try and lay at our feet, we're able to see God's greater purpose before us. And so you would expect, you know what, that's a good place to land the story. I mean, it even, it even ends with a great punchline. My son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found and celebrations Roll credits. But nah. Jesus has got another point that he needs to make because these Pharisees still weren't getting it. Let's look from verse 25 as we conclude the chapter. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older son, was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out And entreated him, begged him. And he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never even gave me a a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so we see the, the scene changes, the focus shifts and rests on the older brother and the older brother was angry. Verse 28, he refused to go in, seething. What? This, this youth will come back here with his rude and feisty self after he's done squandered all of the inheritance. Hmm going to be wahala in here tonight. (laughs) And yet, as the father comes out to beg him, and the father didn't have to, the father could have just said, stop your noise and come inside. Verse 29, look how he responds to the father. Look how rude he is. Look! Not even, look dad. Not even look father. You know, growing up when (laughs) you get called by your your elders and you're like, yes! And they're like, yes who? (laughs) Yes what? Well, that would have been the expectation. Listen, you don't turn around and, and address your dad as a Look. These many years I have served you. No, 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 no. And yet, the father challenges him. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Like, where's your heart? This is your brother. Regardless, he's your kin. He's been through it, but he's back. Where's your compassion? And it's interesting because it ends with the same phrase that the previous section ended with. My son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And previously it said, and they began to celebrate. And there's this... Space left at the end of the phrase, almost as if, will you celebrate? As the Pharisees sit down and look with their legalistic tendency, will you celebrate the loss that is found? You see, not only are we encouraged that God has outrageous love for the lost. We have to see that even in this instance, the older son was just as lost. He was filled with self-righteousness. I've done everything right. I've never missed a beat or dropped the ball. And none of us can make such a claim before the Lord God. None of us are able to stand flawless. Before the eyes of him who is perfect. And so, this older son was actually self righteous and deludedly so. Because there's no doubt that the father could have unraveled numerous charges against him. And yet, the father was gracious to him as well. But the challenge. Would you celebrate? Where's your compassion? The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You see, knowing all the scripture verses, having great theology, being able to quote the scriptures, tell people what they need to know, how to order your life, keep all of your laws and rules, and have not love, then we don't have anything. The Apostle John said that God is love in 1 John. He is fundamentally, in his essence, love. And he defines what love looks like. And as we see Jesus here share this parable in three parts, we see a revelation of God's love that is outrageous, it's unthinkable. And there are many of us for whom we've experienced God's love in a way that (laughs) we're just like, it's unreasonable that God would continue to love me despite the fact that I flop and despite the fact that I'm so insufficient, despite the fact that I fail. And yet this is the true revelation of God's love. Because fundamentally, Jesus is the older son. The apostle Paul calls him the firstborn of many brethren. Jesus is the older son. And yet, as the older son, he goes and he gives his life to save all who would believe. Whilst this older son, as a picture of the Pharisees, was grumbling and complaining just like them. Jesus, as the older son, filled with love and compassion, gave his very life. He gave himself as a sacrifice for us, younger siblings, as it were. So that you could know forgiveness, so that you could know freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. This younger son was restored to the, to the family and was again a beneficiary of the family name, was able to move in the authority of the father's name and he would have even again received inheritance as a result. Even after he squandered, squandered all God's goodness. He would have become heir to more. And so as we conclude and as I invite the ladies up. Just think about the goodness of God to you in your own life. The fact that you're even able to be here today hearing this is a testimony of God's goodness to you. How do you respond to God's goodness? God has outrageous love for you. And yet you can still be loved and lost. Because the Pharisees were left with a choice just as we are. Will we receive God's love? Will we, like the prodigal, turn and receive God's love and recognize God's goodness and surrender to him? Or will we continue to just enjoy his goodness and squander it for our own pleasure and for our own purposes, for our own gratification, for our own agendas, God is at work in each of our lives. God is at work in your life in such ways as to bring you to that place time and time again. Circumstances beyond your control. Get to that place of desperation. And yet, The Lord's saying, look, you shouldn't have to reach that place. I am here and available to you. In that moment when you think that God's just going to bring down judgment on you and just pour out his anger because you've let him down and he's failed you, he shows you more love. And this is that you might know that, as it says in Romans 2, the goodness of God leads people to repent." The goodness of God in the face of our sinfulness, God's goodness leaves us saying, how can I just, how can I forsake God anymore? How can I just ignore him anymore? How can I continue to violate his will? He's too good. He's been too good to me. And so the Lord calls you today. Will you hear his voice? Will you come to him? Will you surrender to him? Today is the day of salvation. Some of you have been putting it off. You know that God's been good. God's been too good. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to the Lord and live. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever puts their wholehearted trust in him would not what? Uh, Would not perish. When we're left to our own devices, we're left like the son in the in the pig pen, starving, dying. He sat here and said, Why should I stay here and perish? When my father's servants have more than me. And we might know a wonderful time in this life, but when we depart this world, if you have not surrendered to Jesus and embraced him, given him your whole heart and life, you will perish. Ultimately. And as the prophet once said, ain't nobody got time for that. So may the Lord help us. We'll have opportunity after the ladies sing to pray. And if you are in that place where you recognize that the Lord has caused you to hear this today. Because you know he's drawing you with his His cords of love, and it's that time to surrender, then let us pray together and allow the Lord to have his way. Amen? Amen? Lord, thank you so much. It's just unthinkable to consider your outrageous love, Lord, and the way in which you've Demonstrated that your heart is one of compassion. You are the God who said that mercy triumphs over judgment. And just like the young prodigal, there are so many times and so many ways that we should have and could have experienced your judgment, and yet you've been so merciful. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize your goodness and to respond wholeheartedly. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.